0: Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, "'Jesus of Nazareth is passing by.' "'And he cried out, "'Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me.' "'And those who were in front rebuked him, "'telling him to be silent. "'But he cried out all the more, "'Son of David, have mercy on me.' "'And Jesus stopped and commanded him "'to be brought to him. "'And when he came near, he asked him, "'What do you want me to do for you?' "'And he said, "'Lord, let me recover my sight.' "'And Jesus said to him, "'Recover your sight. "'Your faith has made you well.' And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. And that's where we'll conclude our reading. If you're not familiar with the Gospel of Luke or any of the Gospels, one of the distinguishing characteristics of Luke as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and John is that as he tells the story of Jesus and what happened in his life and the things that he taught, Luke goes out of his way to show how Jesus was inclusive of those who otherwise felt left out and marginalized or were outcast by the society of their day. So that as he shows us who Jesus is and what he did as the Savior, he again and again reminds us in the way he tells the story of Jesus' life of how gracious and compassionate Jesus was to people who thought that maybe they didn't have an opportunity at eternal life with him that other things about them or in the society had pushed them away and made them think that if there is any good in this world, it just must not be for them. It must be for somebody else and not for them. And Luke is a great author, retells the story of Jesus to say again and again to anyone who's listening. And at the beginning of the gospel, he actually names someone, Theophilus, and says, I'm I'm telling you all of this so that you can know that this Savior who came didn't just come for some people or for some special people, but that he really did come for everyone, and he is available and accessible to anyone who would come for him. And we actually get that reinforced when we um, look at what we've read today in comparison to one another, because fairly different events happen as he's talking to a rich ruler and then as he's talking to a beggar. But when we look at them together, we see what Luke is driving home and what it is he's trying to tell us. But there's a series of questions that come up in our passage that kind of shape uh, the way each event folds. And so the first one is a question comes from a ruler, verse 18. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is a great question. This is the question. And this question had come to Jesus once before in Luke's gospel that prompted the telling of the story of the Good Samaritan. But Luke, when he shared that in chapter 10 or 11, it's escaping me at the moment, but he identified that the person who asked Jesus the question that time about eternal life was asking a question with a motive of just trying to trick Jesus. That he wasn't sincere in asking the question, but he was just kind of introducing a debate, hoping to catch Jesus saying something that he shouldn't say. here we don't get that and actually when we compare this account to mark's version of this account mark even identifies the ruler as bowing down to jesus and saying good teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life so that from everything we can tell uh, this is a good question asked from a sincere person this isn't someone just trying to trick or question jesus but this person knows that as he is experiencing life in the moment it's not eternal What we have in our flesh and blood here and now is not, none of us can describe it as eternal life. We know our limitations. We know our failings. We know our bad memories. We know our ailing bodies. This can't be eternal life. And so he comes, though he's achieved um, some authority as a ruler, even in that status, he understands that this is not all there is. There has to be more than this. And life, in fact, that is eternal. And so he comes and asks Jesus, what is this life? How do we inherit this life? And Jesus challenges him and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he says, you know the commandments. And then he lists several of the Ten Commandments. To which the ruler responds again, not by anything we can tell in terms of arrogance, but just sincerity. Yeah, yeah, I know those. And I've been living as much as possible in accord with those commandments for the whole of my life. He says, okay, well then one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now this isn't a unique invitation. Excuse me. This invitation to follow me is, is not something he's only telling the ruler. This is what he told to Peter and to James and to John. To all of them was the invitation to forsake what ever was their specific task, and to follow after him and to become disciples. But this person, in hearing it, says, becomes very sad, for he was extremely rich. And so Jesus identifies, though his question was a good question, and it was sincere, by giving him this command, he reveals to this ruler where his heart and priorities really lie. do Do you really care about eternal life? If you care about eternal life, it would seem that you care about that more than you care about the things that are of this temporal life. Right? Just logical that you would care more about what lasts forever than you care more about what's fleeting and passing. But for this individual, no, it's hard. He can look around and... For Peter, just walking away from the nets and not being a fisherman and following Jesus might not have been as big of a leap, but for him, this is a huge change in life to consider forsaking everything and going on. So it's a good question. It comes from a sincere place, but Jesus identifies in interacting with him that though he's asking it from his mind and in his head, he might not be asking it truly in the depths of his heart really willing to weigh and consider if he values things that are eternal more than the things that are temporary. And so then Jesus, to those who are around him, say, see how difficult it is for those who have the wealth to enter the kingdom? To which they respond in verse 26, well then, then who can be saved? Part of the reason they asked that as as a question is because they would have seen someone as a ruler and someone in authority and someone in wealth all as signs of God's blessing. That someone was a part of the family being blessed by God because they'd achieved the status of being a ruler and possessing wealth. So if they look at this person and say, even though he's achieved all of that and he has all of the blessing of God, if you're saying it's possible that he might not enter the kingdom, well, then who can? How can we? We're nobodies. We We don't have any special family. We don't have any special authority. So if he can't make it, who can make it? Because that's how they would have associated a person's physical status in that day, their position of wealth, and their favor before God. They would have seen this ruler as somebody who must be closer to God than someone who's not wealthy, who doesn't have status. So if he's closer to God, but he can't enter the kingdom, Jesus, I thought you came to bring good news. (laughs) But if what you're saying is true and status isn't necessarily a a, a lead into the kingdom, then who is it that could possibly be saved? And so Jesus responds in verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter says, hey, we've we've left our homes. We followed after you. Maybe we didn't leave as many things as this guy would have had to leave. Well, we've certainly responded in obedience. We have followed after you. And Jesus says, listen, anyone who does follow after me and forsake something, they're going to get not just in the life to come, but even now, even in this life, it says in verse 30, they will receive many times more. So though he's calling them initially for an act of faithfulness to risk something, He's also holding out to them the promise that you're going to win on the other end of this. There's nothing you can give up that you won't receive on the other end. And many times more. So whatever it is you've given up, just take that and multiply it. And that's what you're going to receive on the other end. So when we think about that, okay, so if you've given up a little, you'll get that back and then more. But if you are the ruler and you give up a lot, that gets sort of built into the equation and you're going to get a lot more on the other end. So again, rather than allowing all of the temporal possessions that he has to keep him out of the kingdom, he's saying you should be just as willing, if not even more willing, when you really believe by faith that you will receive more than the risk that you take in following after me. But we don't often think in those ways. We only keep track of what it is that we're letting go of and not considering what it is that Jesus holds out to us as a promise. So then he goes on to explain. He gives them an answer that none of them understand. So there's two questions. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who could then possibly save if it's not this guy who seems to be popular in every other area of his life? And then in verses 31 to 34, Jesus gives an answer, but none of them, none of them get it. He says, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. After flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. I said, you see this person who's not willing to give up what he has to follow after me. But what you still, none of them understood yet, was that he was the wealthiest ruler of all. He had, in his nature, infinitely more than the ruler ever could have had. And he was willing to give it all up. He was willing to let go of everything that he possessed by right and by nature that was due him the honor the privilege the authority the treasure the wealth and all of that he was willing to give up so that of him it would be said he was mocked shamefully treated spit upon flogged and killed so, for him to follow the will of his heavenly father and the will for which he came into the world, would he, as the richest ruler of all, be willing to give up everything so that you and I could be saved? That's actually the most important question. And he tells them ahead of time, even when they still don't understand it, that that is absolutely what he's going to do for them. He knows what's coming and he's not going to run from it. Because many other times when they hear this, they say, Whoa, 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 if that's what's about to happen to you, why are we going to Jerusalem? (laughs) Why why wouldn't we go in the other direction? Why wouldn't we run from this? He says, No, no, no. I'm not like you. (laughs) I'm not unwilling to give up everything that is rightfully mine. I know what's coming and he specifically chooses to go to Jerusalem anyway to experience all of these things. And it's all hazy in, in their eyes until it happens, and then he actually rises from the dead, and then they realize he'd been preparing them all along for what was going to come. But How do you explain to someone the level of sacrifice that is gonna be made of this type of a nature? We can't make fun of them for the fact that they understood. If anything, we should just be really relieved and say, okay, they don't get it either. (laughs) If they were following with Jesus in close proximity and he was teaching them and there were times after the lesson where they were like, I have no idea what that was about. (laughs) That we'd say, oh, okay, I feel good because there's plenty of times where I walk away from a Bible study, a sermon or whatever, and I'm like, I still have no idea what that was about. I think I've been a Christian for 20 years. I have no idea what he was just trying to say. Yeah, we're just like the disciples. Things take a long time to get to us. But he's also patient with that. And he wasn't willing to do it because they understood it. And then they said, oh, please, please do it. No, no, no. The very fact that they don't understand, the very fact that they can't do it on their own is the very reason he's willing to go and do this for them. Uh, in, In a much, much simpler way this past week, Um, Some of you know, but uh, many of you don't, but we're now expecting our third child in our family, which means Amy's the good kind of sick, and she's really sick. She always gets really, really sick uh, at the beginning, and so Joshua was just my two-year-old, was not being a nice kid at all, just constantly disruptive, and he's seen his mom now sick for weeks and throwing up and just not able to do things, and so I finally was like, this, this is what you did to her. This is how she felt you did this to her. And he's like staring at me. Like, what did I do? I know I have no recollection of this, right? Like, Yeah, and so I can't make you feel that guilty because there's no way for you to comprehend the connection between those two things. But this is why it is one of my primary responsibilities to make sure you always respect and treat her honorably. Because you can't even comprehend the level of sacrifice that it takes for a kid to come into the world, however they come into the world. There's no way for that to happen apart from sacrifice on the part of someone. But how well we understand that and when we're on a normal day and we just get up and get ready and go and we think, you know, yeah, I I did it. I, I did what I needed to do. And I don't know, you wouldn't even be able to do that if someone didn't sacrifice for you a long time ago and didn't love you and care for you when you couldn't take care of yourself. And here, Jesus is explaining to his disciples what he's going to do for them. He gives them the answer, even though they don't understand it. But then we get this next story about a blind beggar, which shows us the shift that needs to take place. Even when we don't understand everything of what God is going to do and how it's going to happen, there's a fundamental posture that gets us toward it and a posture that gets us away from it. And the rich ruler, just asking a good question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everyone else saying, what must I do to be saved? Good questions. But they don't get them to the heart of the matter. Here, this beggar comes, he doesn't even have a question. He commands, he orders, in a a pleading and begging way, Son of David, have mercy on me. Not, Son of David, do you think maybe you could have mercy on me? who do you think we should have mercy on? No, no, no. (laughs) He knows he needs it. He knows Jesus can provide it. And so he begs for it. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then in this story, the only question that comes up is from Jesus to him. And the question from Jesus to him in verse 41 is, what do you want me to do for you? And that's a question that'll make all the difference. <laughs> when you and I sit around and consider all the things that you think or I think we have to do to get right with God, we'll never solve that problem. And we'll be stuck in hell forever. Because we can't get to the bottom of that question. And even when we come up with good answers, most of us don't apply the answers that we know to the fullest that we should. We should. But when the question becomes, but what would Jesus be willing to do for us to get us out of the predicament that we're in? Then what he told Peter was, when he's set to build the church, the gates of hell can't prevail against it. When it's fundamentally up to us and what we have to strive to do, we're without hope when it's up to him and his goodness and whether he's willing to give it all up and what he's willing to do for us, we have reasons for hope. And in verse 42, he responds and says, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. The King James preserves better in its translation the connection between Jesus' response and the question of the disciples because in the King James in verse 42, it says, uh, thy faith hath saved thee uses the same term that responds to the question that was asked earlier. So, who can be saved? And here he says, by faith, you've been saved. Your faith in Christ's ability to do everything that needs to be done has now made salvation possible. If the question remains at the level of what we need to do, we have no reason for hope. But if the question is, what would Jesus do? What can we ask him to do? That type of childlike faith, which is what he described earlier in chapter 17, that simple faith that just looks out and asks for him to respond and do what needs to be done on our behalf, is the type of faith that makes salvation possible. It's fascinating when you compare the rich ruler and the blind beggar. The rich ruler asks an eternal question. But it comes out that he really cares about temporal things. The blind beggar asks for temporal things. I'm just, I'm looking for healing right now. My, my body's ailing, have mercy on me. But because his posture is different, it's one of dependence and looking and longing for what he needs in Christ. Not only does he experience healing in that his physical sight is restored, but he's spiritually restored to the Father by faith. And as we listen in, we have every reason to then have hope. So you mean we don't have to be the best and the brightest like the ruler and and have all kinds of acclaim to be closer to God? No, 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 you could be a blind beggar. But if you learn the right posture before your maker, even when you don't fully understand everything he's going to do for you, you don't get all the terms, you don't understand all the nuance, but what you know deep down inside is that you need mercy and that he has it for you, then you can experience a restored relationship and salvation in a way that the smartest person who's still trying to figure this out like a math equation, but is then also allowed his intellect to get in the way of his relationship with God, will never experience. Because it's not about how much you know or how much I know. It's about who he is and what he knows to do for us that need it. Leo Tolstoy wrote a great short story. It's called The Three Hermits. And in it, he describes a bishop who's on a boat traveling to an island. And he sees that a series of people on the boat are fascinated by something that he can't see. So he wants to join in. And so he says, what are you, what are you talking about? And they point and they say, we're talking about that island over there and the hermits that live on that island. And he doesn't see it. And they said, no, it's right over there. You have to look hard, but there's an island there, and there's three hermits on it. He says, really? And they say, yeah, if you've ever met them, they're people of profound faith, godly people, who just serve each other. And so he's fascinated by it as this bishop, and he says, goes to the captain of the ship and says, I want to get off. I actually want to go meet those hermits. And if I can, I want to be helpful to them, and I want to teach them more. And the captain doesn't want to do it, but eventually gives permission and so sends off a boat and sends the bishop to the three hermits and the bishop comes to them and he meets these three very, very humble people and says, what do you do to serve God? And they answer in this kind of an ignorant way. We we, we don't know, we just serve each other. He says, okay. So when you pray, what do you pray? I said, we pray like this. Three of you, three of us, Lord have mercy on us. The bishop's life. Ah. so you know something about the Trinity you know something says, let me teach you more and so then the bishop goes on to try to teach them about God the Father God the Son God the Holy Spirit and then he says let me even teach you more of a prayer and he goes to teach them the Lord's Prayer so he gets the three of them who are very simple in their understanding and he works hard our Father our Father which we'll are in heaven which we'll are in heaven they go back and forth and learning it and he stays until all three of them have it down he says good I've helped you now I can go back on the ship and go. So he gets back on the ship. He goes. He's so energized by this experience that he has. Everyone else goes to sleep, and he can't sleep that night because he's just so thankful. So he looks out on the water, and he sees something coming. And he assumes it's a ship getting closer and closer. And maybe it's danger. So he wakes up others to say, hey, there's, there's someone approaching very, very quickly. And so others get up, and they look out, and they say, that, that's not a ship. Those are the three hermits walking on water. And they come walking out to the ship. And he's amazed. He says, what are you doing? And they said, bishop, bishop. Every time we kept repeating the prayer, we had it down. But when we stopped for a moment and we tried to say it again, we forgot a word, and then he forgot a word, and then we can't remember it anymore. Please teach it to us again. And this bishop, who has all the notoriety and prestige of being a bishop in the church, responds. It says, he crossed himself. says, your own prayer... Will reach the Lord, men of God. It is not for me to teach you, but pray for us, sinners. In other words, he realized that he went with a posture of the knowing one, the smart one, and that he could just give more information to them. Yet he didn't have the type of faith that ever let him walk on water. And so he looked at them and said, How can I improve them? But in all of their simplicity of understanding, they still had a profound level of faith. And when he was confronted with it in reality, he, he realized the poverty of his own faith and said, you don't need more from me, I need more from you. Pray for me, a sinner. And that's the kind of shift that happens when we recognize that it's not about what we know and it's not about who we are and it's not about any position that we have. It's when we acknowledge our need, our brokenness, our dependence, our need for mercy, Then we'll be the ones who follow after him. Then we'll be the ones who seek him. And sure, if our knowledge grows and our understanding grows, great. But our knowledge and understanding should never lead to less of a life of faith and a dependence on the God who gives us mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we're thankful for your love and your mercy. We confess we have an ability to miss the mark so many times and we have the ability to complicate things that you have made simple. And so we pray that you would give to us the type of humility that longs in faith to cry out to you, to plead for mercy to trust in, with a childlike faith that you're able to do whatever's impossible for us is possible for you. And that therefore all of the barriers for why we don't follow you and why we don't trust in you and why we haven't done this or that might just fall to the wayside. And that in simple obedience we would follow after you. Seeing that you're the, the best ruler of all who's given up everything that we need we confess that even as we contemplate it, we can't adequately understand the cost that it was to you in the cross to save us. But we thank you for doing for us what we never could have even known to ask for and what we could never fully grasp or understand, but we confess we desperately need. And so we thank you and we praise you in your Son's name. Amen.